0: text reads it um, and says, "This is the word of the Lord, unfortunately. <laughs> it's, a di- it's a difficult thing to, to hear, and uh, we're going to get into it today. Welcome. My name is Mark, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. I just want to do, uh, take a moment just to recognize those who are online. Um, hello, We can't see you, but hopefully you can see us and we miss you. I know there's some people who are in isolation and um, others who are just uh, staying safe for different health reasons. Um, but, and, and I think there might even be a family in South Australia. If you guys are here this morning, uh, we love you and miss you a long time, Andreas and Maria. Um, they may not be there. I'm not sure. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into these verses. Lord, I do thank you that you have uh, brought us to yourself and that you've given us your word We recognize that your word is not always easy to hear. Sometimes it's even harder to obey. But you never ask us to do things that are not good for us. No one who walks with you, Jesus, loses in the end. And yet your upside-down way of viewing life is so different to ours that it's offensive, we don't get it, we don't like it. Our Western philosophies teach us against it. So please help us by Your Spirit this morning to hear what Your Word says. Teach us, train us, guide us, draw us in. In Your precious and wonderful name, Amen. Um, At King's Cross, we don't often speak about money. Uh, You can count on your hand about uh, almost, I think, about how many times we've spoken about money um, and yet, if, you, if Jesus were to preach, here, if we were only to preach from Jesus' words, uh, we would speak a lot more about money. If Jesus himself were to be preaching every week, we would deliver way more sermons on money than we have. Um, in other words, you can't follow Jesus and not talk about money and possessions. It's such a big deal. And for Jesus, it's kind of, if he's talking about it more than anything else, and he does, he talks about money more than any other um, subject. Uh, there must be something at the heart of money, money and possessions that gets at uh, what Jesus is trying to teach about His kingdom. Um, Spurgeon says this quote, which is very helpful for us this morning. He says, One way to know if Jesus is precious to you is that nothing else is. Jesus' teaching on money isn't easy to take. And as Keller kind of pointed out, the most difficult the reason why it's difficult to take is that Jesus' teaching on money exists. Um, That's what's so hard about it, is what do you do with it after He's said it? (laughs) Um, If Jesus only taught once, then we could say, and it would would almost be good to say, look, His teaching is clearly there. It's hard to understand what He's saying, and He only said it once, so we can't really build a theology around it. The problem is that Jesus repeats Himself again, and again, and again. And again so that we kind of can't ignore it, Um, and we can build a theology around it. So that's the difficulty with it. It it exists. It's here. Um, So, this morning, I do just want to say a couple of things before we get going. What we're not saying, what you mustn't hear, if you're visiting with us, what we're not going to do is ask you for your money, just to come out straight away to let you know we're not going to ask you for your money. Um, We're also not going to say you can't have money. That's not what this text is saying. And we're also going to avoid ascetism. Ascetism is the opposite of greed. It's, you know, If greed is trying the accumulation, I can never have enough, then ascetism is you know, everything materialistic is evil. Get rid of it all. Uh, that's the, so the opposite of greed is, is ascetism. Both of those are equally evil. Both of them are over-focusing on, on money and possessions. You, you should avoid both of those things. And so we're not going to uh, turn... From greed, you know, covetousness and wanting stuff to go oh, therefore we should have nothing that's not what Jesus teaches um, so we, we're not going to say that either so you can relax around that as well and you know so you, you don't have to be thinking oh, no, I knew I should have missed this morning um, and, and good news as we go through Luke Jesus is going to talk a, f- a bit more often about money and so <laughs> there are going to be quite a few sermons around the things that Jesus is saying as, as we finish up Luke So here's how we're going to travel today. Number one, a foolish view of Jesus. Number two, a foolish view of money and possessions. Number three, uh, the foolishness of God. All right. Number one, a foolish view of Jesus. Here we've got a man who's in a bit of a situation, and he comes to Jesus, and he has something he wants in his sights, but he can't get to it through his own strength. He wants his brother to give him or donate to him or draw him into a share of his brother's inheritance. And he is unable to convince his brother by himself. And so he needs some external mediator, someone who has power and authority and influence, to uh, mediate for him, to make a call for him, to exert his power for him, and get for him what he wants which is a share in this inheritance. And so he comes to Jesus for this. He sees Jesus as someone on the outside who has the influence and the power and the authority to get for him what he wants. This is not a bad idea. It's, it's, it's appropriate within his culture. Um, they would go to rabbis that didn't have courts like we have courts. Uh, they would go to a rabbi, and a rab- they would bring their case before the rabbi, and the, the, each party could make their case and their claim. And the rabbi would make a decision. And whatever the rabbi decided was the verdict. He was the judge, the jury, and gave the verdict. So him coming and saying, Rabbi, is recognizing him and saying, I see you as someone who has this authority and power to exert your influence over my brother and to give me the life that I want. Um, What he's saying is, Jesus, help me with my brother. Jesus, help me get what I believe I deserve. Jesus, help me have a more comfortable life. He really sees Jesus as someone who's able to verbally give a verdict that it can get him all of that. That's quite, that, that's quite powerful. Um, unfortunately, I see myself in him, and I don't think we're that different today. I'll give you some examples. We, we go to God in the same way. God, please give me the promotion then I'll have more time and money to serve you. God, please help me get that contract. Then I'll be able to give more. God, I won't ask for much. But if you could make that person like me, I'll be satisfied. I remember praying that exact same thing. God, if you can help me marry Ness, my life will be perfect. God, please get me into the class with my friends. God, make the rain stop so we can play our sports game. I don't know how many times I prayed that as a as a kid. God, please put your favor on the stock I own. God, can you increase my equity so that we can make other investments? And we might add a bracket to all of these and say, and then we can serve you more. Or then we can give to your kingdom more. And then we can, you know, as a kind of a caveat, negotiating, twisting God's arm. God, my family will be secure if I can save this much money. There's little difference between this man and his view of Jesus and me and the way that my heart interacts with God very often. And maybe it's true of you as well. Here's a question. Do I ever go to God looking for someone who can exert their authority, their influence, and give a verdict in my life? Do I do what this man does and say, Rabbi, glorious God, omniscient one, omnipotent one, almighty one, Can you please work in my life to get me the good life? Spurgeon's quote is such a great diagnostic here. If Jesus is precious to you, uh, then nothing else is. It's such a great diagnostic because what it's saying is, um, if is if Jesus isn't precious to you, there's a lot of things that will come to mind that God could be useful for you to get. But if Jesus is precious to you, you, it's not that those things go away, but you forget about those things. What would you like from me? We sang it this morning. Nothing. Nothing but to know your love. To know you, we sang that. To know your love is everything to me. It's such a great diagnostic, and, and I can tell you where the diagnostic hits my heart, but I'm not going to. So the first problem is that we see Jesus as someone who can help me get the life I want. Here's a few Jesuses I think go around, at least in my heart. Santa Claus Jesus. Do you know him? you know that old video? I wonder if you know him. Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord. Do you know that video? You have to be old enough to have seen it. Yeah? I wonder if you know him. Jesus is. And he's, there's just this beautiful kind of five minutes of Jesus is and just quoting Bible verses. Well, it doesn't say this. Jesus is Santa Claus. He can get you what you want. If you're good enough and you're on the good list, not the naughty one. But he lives in my heart, this Jesus. I invited this Jesus into my heart many years ago. This Jesus gets me stuff. And, and he gives it to me, especially when I'm good. The, the better I am, basically morally, the more chance I have of getting good stuff from Santa Claus Jesus. But I also have another Jesus living in my heart, this broker Jesus. This Jesus, if you give him money, he will give it back to you with interest. This Jesus goes by different names, and, and his message now, pop, you know, now it's popular as kind of um, what what is it? Prosperity gospel. You know, give give to Jesus, give to broker Jesus, and broker Jesus will make your life sweet. And if your life is not sweet then you're not really giving yet to Broker Jesus. You don't have enough faith. You need to have more faith. Trust, believe, give. Broker Jesus lives in my heart. Gangster Jesus lives in my heart too. And we pay him to keep out of our affairs and not break stuff in our lives. You know, you don't tithe, and then that week the car breaks down. Oh, shoot, Gangster Jesus got a hold. He knew. Gangster Jesus saw I didn't give. That's why the car broke down. I don't want the card to break down. I better give to Gangster Jesus this week. Right? Anyone ever felt that? You're not going to raise your hand, are you? (laughs) Sorry, thank you. So Gangster Jesus got invited into my heart as well, and He comes with guilt and shame. And you give to protect stuff. Then there's ATO Jesus. And we give Him a little bit off the top, and then we can do whatever we want with the rest. Just give Him first. The rest is yours. Do with it as you please. All of these Jesuses live in my heart. I wonder how many of them live in yours. Jesus's response to this man is blunt. He says to him, Man, am I your life coach? Am I your investment manager? Am I your agent or your lawyer? Whoever behaves this way towards Jesus is a fool, he says. Now, fool is a terrible word that we must be careful of using in, in our language, but... Over here, what it simply means, a fool in the Bible is anyone that sees the world differently to how God sees it. That's what a fool is. It's foolish to think that things are different to how God says things are. So I'm often a fool. And if you don't believe me, I'll give you an example. This week, someone said to one of my daughters... Um, I think when you grow up, you'll be great at this profession. And something in my heart felt, felt comfort in it. My heart went, oh, yeah, I could see that. And her life will be okay if she does that. She'll be looked after. She'll have ease. Yeah, okay, I could, I could see that. Then I was talking to her about this, maybe just trying to pour water on the seed that would take root in her heart. And she said, yeah, Dad, but I don't think so. I think I'd like to do. And she mentioned a career in which there's little to no money uh, or comfort or security, dealing with problems without payment constantly. And something in my heart sank as I kind of thought, oh, she would be really good at that. But, oh, no, no comfort, no security, no ease. In other words, what would she have to do? She would really have to trust God. Oh, no. I'm not saying that's how my mind thinks. I'm just opening a window into how my heart thinks. Bearing in mind she's only eight, she can change. <laughs> One way to know if Jesus is precious to you is that nothing else is. Money and possessions more than anything else distract and blind us from Jesus. Um, He becomes someone powerful that we can use from the outside to get the good life, to work upon our life, to work into our relationships, to work in our bank accounts, to work in our jobs, to get us the life that we want. Number two, a foolish view of money. Jesus' rebuke goes like this. He says, um, Be on your guard against all covetousness, which is one for more, for one's life does not consist, that word there means exist, uh, in the abundance of possessions. So, he's saying, watch out that you don't believe that money and possessions will lead to the good life. In other words, one way to know if Jesus is precious to you is that nothing else is. Watch out, be on your guard. Now, this is comforting. Whenever Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard, it means that we might have the propensity to fall and stumble into the trap which is great, which means if you fall and stumble in your trap, you can say, Oh, Jesus, help me. You warned us about this. Uh, That's a real comfort when you find Jesus warning and rebuking. And it's great. It means he sees our humanity. We don't have to hide it from him. So Jesus tells a story about a man who experiences a surprisingly abundant harvest. And it's kind of like someone in our culture who wins the lotto or receives a massive inheritance or some sort of massive payout that changes their life or their investment in the stock market suddenly skyrockets, uh, their Bitcoin goes through the roof. Um, and they're kind of answering the question, what would you do if you won the lotto? Have any of us ever had an answer, Had to answer that question you know, with friends, at school, with, you know, what would you do if you ever won the lotto? And we all have very sanctified answers and You know, uh, those of us who are liars about how little we would use and how much we would give. Those of us who are more honest just talk about the good life that we would live and how little we would work. Um, And Jesus is telling this kind of parable from an honest perspective. He hides nothing. He's not pretending the man is more sanctified than he is. And Here's the question. Why would we think the good life is found in money and possessions? This man... uh, Looks at these things, we'll, we'll look at it, and he, and he concludes to his soul, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what he says to himself, I'll eat, drink, and be merry. This is an idiom from that time, and it's an idiom that faces death. This is what the idiom is all about, and, and that, uh, it, it's, it's thought that, or best under, it's understood, that the Egyptians at some parties would carry a mummy around during the feast. And so that people could look death in the face, and the, then the idiom would carry forward. Now, everyone at the party, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, you're going to be this mummy pretty soon, so eat, drink, and be merry. Let the party continue. Sailors uh, were known when the ship goes down to pass on this idiom as well. Well, we're all going to die now. The ship's going down. There's nothing we can do. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Paul doesn't disagree either. Paul knows of this idiom. It's, it's known in this culture. Paul says to this, the Corinthians, If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. At the heart of the problem is where you find a good life. Basically, you have a finite amount or number of resources, and you can either focus them on building this life, or you can focus them on building a uh, life to come. You can't do both. You can't balance it out. Whoever, um, wherever someone focuses uh, is their life. And you, you kind of identify yourself with here or there. And so when we focus on the here and now, we over-identify a life of of momentary pleasure or comfort or quality of life or social status or experiences or aesthetics or investments or possessions. That's what we have to do. When we're focusing our uh, finite resources in this life, those things become the goal, become precious. But one way to know if Jesus is precious to you is that nothing else is, which, if that's true then the good life in this life isn't really good because suddenly comfort and pleasure and aesthetics and stuff starts to lose its meaning and starts to not fulfill what it's promised. It told you it was going to get you the good life, but it's not doing that. You're not satisfied. You're not fulfilled. You just want more. It's not doing what it promised it would do. So there's a foolish way to look at money and possessions, to view money and possessions as something that exists to give me a certain quality of life is foolish. To eat, drink, and be merry is a foolish way. It's a way to look at it that's different to how God views it. And it all hinges on this one point. Paul hinges all of it. He's saying the good life is not bad if the dead are not raised. That's what he says. If the dead are not raised, then let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So there's a question there. And the fundamental question is, Is there life with God or isn't there? Is this it? That changes everything. If this is all there is, then your money and possession should be used by you for building a good life. But if there is eternal life with God, then that philosophy is foolish. That changes everything. Jesus says, life does not exist in the abundance of possessions. So Jesus is saying, if life doesn't exist in the abundance of possessions, Jesus is also saying, flip side of that coin, life does exist in God. There is life. There is the raising of the dead. There is life beyond this in Christ. Let me just say, if someone's not a Christian on the screen or in this room, uh, your walk with Jesus doesn't start at your idea of money and possessions. That, only, that should come as Jesus becomes precious to you in your heart. If Jesus isn't beautiful to you, you it shouldn't change anything about your money. Because as uh, yeah, life doesn't exist in, the, uh, <coughs> in our money and possessions. Once we see who Jesus is, once we see what we have in God, then the things of this world become slowly dim. First Jesus, not philosophy. That will lead to ascetism. So the second foolish way to view money and possessions is as if it's my own. Listen to this man. Watch him. Watch what he does. He thought to himself. This is someone who's reasoning and thinking and planning. I do this all the time. I think to myself all the time. You think to yourself all the time. We're thinking it out. We're planning it out. We're trying to make uh, be wise and, and do what's right. He thought to himself. Here's the problem. What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? The solution, I will build my barns, I will store up my grain and my goods. And the result, I will tell my soul, rest, eat, drink, and be merry. The reality, though, God required His soul that night, this is what Jesus says, and all the money and possessions were left behind. What happens? His thoughts were discounted. As nothing. His planning was discounted as nothing. His building was discounted as nothing. His savings were discounted as nothing. His security and assurance were discounted as nothing. His balance, in the end, was nothing. Jesus, God, asks him this question, man, today you're coming to be with me. Who's going to have what you leave behind, which is everything? In other words, whose will they be makes the point that they were never yours. If it gets passed on from you to someone else, they were never yours. If you can't decide whether to take them with you or not, they were never yours. They were lent to you, they were given to you for a time, they were there for a purpose. They weren't yours. And now they're going to go to someone else and they're going to have a go with it. And then someone else and they're going to have a go with it. But they weren't yours. Whose are they going to be? The question is, what were they for? Why did this man have it in the first place? And I'm going to come to the answer soon, but not right now. I want to go, I'll answer it here, but let's go to the foolishness of God. There was another man standing right in front of them, telling them the story. The antithesis of this. This man, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. This man was in the very nature God, yet he emptied himself and became a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross. The antithesis, seeing life very differently. You might say someone who gives up riches for poverty... Glory for shame, praise for scoffing, pleasure for pain, beauty (coughs) for disgrace, life for death. (coughs) That may be the definition of a fool. And you'd be right. But it's God's foolishness. The Bible tells us that God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of man. And that God's ways are not man's ways. You'd be right that according to Western philosophies, that's foolishness. But according to the way that God sees what God is achieving, it's the road to greatness. It's the road to abundance. It's the road to infinite, eternal joy. Through Christ's poverty, we are made rich. That's what the Bible teaches us. That He became rich what He was not, to make us what we were not. That He put on our unrighteousness on the cross. We sang this today so that we could put on His righteousness. We are rich in mercy, rich in God's acceptance, rich in redemption, rich in time, rich in glory. How many of us, I mean, just going back to time, how many of us think of time as a commodity we don't have much of? I certainly do, all the time. Times so it's not something I've got a lot to give of. But my, through Jesus, I actually am rich in time. I have eternal life. Rich in glory. So through Christ's finite death, we receive an infinite life. And that turns everything upside down. So what is the reason for money and possessions? I told you I wanted to answer that question. And what are we to do with them? When we know Jesus, when Jesus is beautiful to us, when we have received His life, when He has saved us from death and brought us into relationship with God, when we are the children of God, I'm I'm trying to make it very clear that the first thing that happens is we get a relationship with Jesus. When that has happened, when our lives are sealed with Him, And we will be eternally in His presence. Then we can answer this question about the freedom we have to be empowered by the Spirit and see how to live our lives. We avoid greed and we avoid ascetism. We don't even start that debate. So those in the church with more don't need to be ashamed when they look at those with less. And those with less shouldn't think they're superior to those who have more or vice versa. Neither of those are anything. So what are they there for? Many and possessions are there, Jesus says, so that we can be rich towards God. That's what they're there for. They're given for a moment in time into our hands so that we can choose, not as robots, but as people, to be rich towards God, to participate in a walk with the Lord, money and possessions are a means to direct our hearts towards Him. To daily live our lives in practical ways that honor Him, glorify Him, and learn to love what He loves. You see this in life. If God made robots, we talk, I talk to this about. I talk with this about my kids all the time. Why does God allow this? Why does God allow that? God has to give us this. He has to invite us into participation and give us freedom. That's how love works. If you don't have freedom to choose someone, if you don't have freedom to lay down your life for someone, to serve someone, then you can't ever really experience love. If you're a robot and you can do no other, that can, you can never love. You can do the right thing, but you can never love. And what we learn from God is God is love. And God's impact on our lives is to love what He loves. And so money and possessions becomes an opportunity for us to learn how to participate with God in what God is doing, to love God and to love what God is doing. Mainly, to love other people. That's why a Christian ethic is to give to the poor, because God loves the poor. A horrible Christian ethic that kind of comes out of the American West is this idea that God helps those who help themselves. The majority of, uh, American, uh, majority of Christians were done, uh, Barna Institute did a poll on American Christians, and the majority believed that it was, this was a scripture. God loves those who love themselves, was in the Bible. Uh, God helps those who help themselves, that was in the Bible. And just to be clear, it's not in the Bible. That's not a Christian ethic. Work hard, and God will reward you. A nearer Christian ethic is, God loves the poor. God loves the disenfranchised. God loves the downcast. And He loves to help us participate in loving them in practical ways. You can see this in life. I've had four children. They all make, made something equally badly. You know what that was when they were little? And you have children, you'd have this. Mud pies. You know why children make mud pies? Because they have nothing else. They 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 can't go buy you something. They've got no money. They can't really go in the kitchen and make something. You never let them. They would uh, burn down the house. It would be terrible anyway. So they go into the environment that they can, the garden. And they take all the love in their heart towards their parents. And they make something and they bring it to you. And it's disgusting with bugs and chicken manure and all kinds of horrible things. And they say, here is a cupcake. Please eat it. And the more stupid of us parents, like myself, feel a bit of guilt, and we take a tiny little bite. The cleverer parents, like my wife, just go, oh, that's lovely, and chuck it back in the garden behind the the child's back. Sorry, Zeke, now you know. (laughs) But the point is, the reason a child does that is because they can't help themselves. They love you so much, they've got to go and make something to participate in showing that. And it's the same with God. And God puts money and possessions into our lives that we can be rich towards Him. That we can aim our lives towards Him. That we can take our hearts and we can bend ourselves and say, I have found Christ, the most precious thing, and I take all that I have and all that I am and I bend myself towards the Lord and I want to be rich towards God. Think about the person you revere the most in this life. In This, life. Don't, this is not a time to be super spiritual and say, I revere no one they all. I see everyone as equal. Just be honest. And sorry, if that is you, great, fantastic. I'm just not there yet. If they walked into your house, I don't know, the Queen of England, or someone, walked into your home, and they sat down and they said, "Could I have a glass of water?" What would your heart do? I know. I'll tell you what my heart would do. I, I would go. I have tap water. Cold water, room temperature water, soda water, mineral water. The shops down the road, I can get you any water you want. What would you like? There would be nothing too hard to do to give this person just a glass of water. Because I revere them so much. Here's what Jesus is saying. When God is precious to you, your money and possessions are an opportunity for you to cast your love upon Him. And to pour your life into Him and thereby participate in relationship. Now God needs nothing from us, in case we didn't know. And everything is His. And when we die, all we have just moves on. We don't take it with us. So what do we do? How do I give to God? Where's His bank account? We only have King's Cross's accounts on the internet. Where's God's? And this is the spot sometimes the church takes the place of. We'll give it all to the church. We're His kind of representative here. But I just want to be clear and honest. We're not. I mean, we are, but we're not His bank account on earth. Myriads of opportunities lie before us. Different ways. God, He doesn't give us one way. If He gave us just one way... Char- some sort of charity, some sort of church, some- we wouldn't have to think. We wouldn't be able to participate. We'd be back to kind of ATO Jesus. Oh, that's what you want from me. Now I can get on with my life. But He doesn't. He says, all of life is your opportunity. Every time you pass that person on the, on the street, no guilt and shame, but there's an opportunity. Every charity that ever existed, opportunity. Everything the church ever does, opportunity. Opportunity. Your neighbor, opportunity. Your couch, opportunity. Your car, opportunity. Your time, opportunity. God goes, bend it towards what is precious to you. Use it for what you love. And then wait. Jesus says the problem of covetousness is that we're not rich towards God. We bend our hearts towards things. And we ask God to help us get them. Let me land this. God gives so that we can give. It's His way to draw us to His heart, to love what He loves. The man came to Jesus wanting a share in his brother's inheritance. Remember that? What he didn't see was that standing right before him, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of heaven, God was inviting him into a share of his inheritance. Why do you ask me for this when I'm offering you that? Imagine you could go stand before Bill Gates. And you went to Bill Gates and you went, Bill, can you please make my brother or sister give me some of what dad and mom gave them? Bill says, I'd be willing to bring you into everything I have. You can share in everything I have. How silly would we be? Jesus, make my brother bring me into the inheritance. You've got the power to do that. And Jesus offers us a shared inheritance, a living inheritance, because he's never going to die. The kingdom of God is ours. Everything that belongs to God is ours to participate in. We participate with God in bringing His kingdom into this world. Through a finite amount of time and resources and talents and skills, I'd love to stand on the corner of a street and bring the beauty of God into this world through music, but people would ask me to stop singing. But I can find what He's given me and I can bend it back towards Him and participate in a loving relationship. Money and possessions have a way To keep our eyes on Jesus just as much as they have a way to take our eyes off. God gives so that we can give. It's His way to draw our hearts to Himself. Everything we have is given so that we can participate in giving. A life of giving, Jesus says, has an eternity of rewards. We're saying so many times today that we take our crowns off before you. Where did those crowns come from? They're rewards. The New Testament teaches that God gives us these rewards for this this life. Why would we take our crowns, our rewards, off? Because when Jesus is precious to us, nothing else is. And our crowns become heavenly uh, means to continue participating in love. What I can take off here in this worship is my crown, is my glory, is my reward, and I lay it before you because you are greater. You are greater than this thing on my head. You are greater than this thing in my heart. You are the greatest, Jesus. I lay it before you. That's what I have. So even in heaven, we're given means to participate in loving God. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Be rich towards God. Nothing is really yours. It's only yours to give. Let me close with this old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace